Second Kings chapter 17. We're glad you've joined us in person, and we're glad for our internet campus members. And hello to all of you in Indiana with Brother Fulton. I know they're having a good time, and we look forward to hearing Brother Fulton preach God's word here in a little while. As we finished last week's lesson, we were looking at the elements of the children of Israel's disobedience. They had not only sinned, but they had sinned against the Lord their God. And whether or not they had sinned against man's law was either secondary or irrelevant. Because sometimes man's law matches what God's law says. God says, thou shalt not steal the Texas Penal Code and the U.S. Code of Justice in probably every state in the, as President Obama said, in the 57 states, <clears throat> still have 50, says thou shalt not steal in some form or another. But then some man's laws are against what God's law says. So then they become not secondary but irrelevant. And Israel, Samaria in particular, the capital, had sinned against the Lord their God. And another aggravating element of their sin was that they had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Now this went all the way back to the children of Israel in Exodus, after their exodus from Egypt. And this same thing could be said about each of the generations of the children of Israel, that they had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of, Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. Now the fact that God was their creator should have been enough to cause them to obey him, as we discussed last week. However, he was not only their creator, but also their deliverer for bringing them up out of that land of bondage. And we showed how all of this taught not just about Israel's disobedience, but also about our own. God created man. He delivered man from the penalty of sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, his creation, his people have disobeyed him. And now we're going to look at yet another element of Israel's sin as we continue to study the reign of King Hosea. And if you've just joined us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. Look with me now in that verse at the very end. And it says about these people who had sinned against the Lord and had feared other gods. This is another of the elements of Israel's disobedience. And this fear, you see the word fear and feared in the Bible. We use it in our own vernacular. And it, it's worth reminding you that fear takes two forms. It can either be a terror or it can be an extreme reverence, a respect. So if someone says that Brother Doug is a God-fearing man, 
It doesn't mean that Brother Doug runs around like this all day saying, Boy, I hope God doesn't kill me today. Oh, I sure hope he doesn't chasten me today. It means that, God, that Doug lives his life in such a manner that it is obvious that he has a tremendous respect for God. And that ought to be our goal, is through the power of the Holy Spirit, a Christian ought to live our lives so that others say, that's a God-fearing man right there. That's a God-fearing woman or, or teenager. And this fear was both, this fear that Israel had, that Samaria had for other gods, was both. It was an extreme respect for these other false gods and also a terror that they would displease those other gods. How far does a person have to fall to not only sin against God, but to fear some other God than the one true God? It's all make-believe, isn't it? I believe in many cases the words other gods, as they're quoted here in the Bible, are wrapped up in this phrase, the traditions of men. The traditions of men. So when you see the phrase or the words other gods, think about the traditions of men. The traditions of men are under the headship of the God of this world. And that's what the Bible, that's how the Bible refers to Satan in some places. The God of this world, little g. Who according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, is the one who blinds the minds of the unbelievers... To the gospel. That's Satan. And if you could summarize how Satan desires to blind mankind to the gospel, you might summarize it this way. Satan persuades mankind to believe the traditions of men and to fear the maker of those traditions. That's what happens. And if Satan can accomplish this end then there are several consequences that follow. If Satan can get people to believe, and it doesn't take much, if he can persuade mankind to believe that the traditions of men are superior to the commandments of God, and that mankind should fear the maker of the traditions of men more than the maker of the commandments of God, then several things would follow. One is, nobody would fear the Lord. Their minds are blinded to the gospel, which means their minds are blinded to the Lord of the gospel. They may even see Jesus as a good man. Even the religion of Islam holds Jesus in some high regard. There are many who say, I, I'm a Christ follower, and I'm not real sure whether that means they're a Christian or that they believe just trying to follow the example of Jesus is the way to be accepted by God. They believe he's a man who was good in everything he did. He lived a good life, and he should be copied by others. Now, if such people believe the traditions of men over the commandments of the Lord then they'll be able to admire Jesus without accepting him as their righteous sacrifice, as a righteous sacrifice in their place. 
they'll say that's not necessary. He's a good man and I'm going to try to be like him. That's all I need to do to be accepted by God. And they'll only see themselves as sinners if they have offended the traditions of men. That's what it is to fear other gods. And if they're not as bad, if these unbelievers aren't as bad as other people, then they may think themselves to be good, to be acceptable to the God of their choice. Now, a second consequence of Satan persuading man to believe the traditions of men over the commandments of God is this. Those people will fear what man thinks of them as the children of Israel feared other gods. After all, all of those other gods, which Paul says are no gods, but all of those other gods are under the God of this world, Satan. And once again, we go back to Genesis for the first example of this truth. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6, if you're taking notes, just write that down. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now those verses followed an exchange between Eve and the serpent, who was Satan. Eve had just told the serpent that she was not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the commandment of God forbade it, it prohibited it. And that furthermore, there were dire consequences for disobeying the commandment. Now in the verses I just read you, Eve lost her fear for the Lord and those consequences. She had been persuaded by Satan that her God was wrong. Now, had she continued in the fear of the Lord and not the fear of other gods, she would have obeyed the Lord and rebuked the serpent. Said, get out of here. Well, what you said's not true. God said, don't eat it. And God said, I'll die if I do. And so I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to listen to you. Now you slither on away somewhere else. And what Israel did was after the pattern of Eve and then Adam, they knew God's law, but they no longer feared it. Do you remember in the book of Exodus when God had given the commandments to Israel and after they were read in their ears, the children of Israel said, all that the Lord has said, this we will do. They feared the Lord and they feared his commandments in that day. But they, like Eve and Adam, lost fear of the commandments of the Lord and of the Lord of the commandments. 
They began to fear other gods, which means they began to fear the traditions of other gods, the traditions of men now. The consequences of believing the traditions of men over the commandments of the Lord were, number one, nobody would fear the Lord. Number two, they would fear the traditions of men or what man thinks is right. And now, number three, they would never believe the truth. Truth never changes. So when we believe in truth, we're never worried that it will be different tomorrow than it is today. As an example, I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 yesterday in my daily reading. And one of the verses I read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 was verse 5 which says, Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So the preacher wrote, It's better not to make a promise than it is to make a promise and break it. That's the way we would understand that. And after my Bible reading and prayer, I laid in my bed and finally drifted off to sleep. And when I got up this morning... I didn't have to look in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 5 to see if God had changed what he said. I knew that what I read yesterday was the same today and the same as it was when Solomon wrote it a few thousand years ago. It never had changed. And that's the nature of truth. Now let's contrast that with the traditions of men. When I was an athletic trainer in high school and then in college, I cared for the injuries of a lot of athletes in different sports. I had my hands full. And I tried to help prevent injuries in every one of them, but sometimes they got hurt. That's the nature of athletics. And the most common injury was a sprained ankle. What we call turning your ankle, an an inversion sprain where your foot rolls underneath as you try to take a step this way or that way, and normally it resulted in a tremendous amount of swelling. And I had been taught in all of my training that you immediately put ice on that injury and you ice it on and off for up to 72 hours. That was just the way we did things because we were trying to keep it from swelling. Well, the sports medicine profession changed its mind on that across the board fairly recently, within the last, I would say, five years or so. And they learned that swelling or inflammation is actually part of the healing process. Now, it doesn't feel very good, But it's part of the healing process. And without getting too deep into it, inflammation brings a type of inflammatory cell to the injured area. And there's a chemical called histamine, which is released, and it actually causes an increase in circulation to the area. And then that brings certain cells that are involved in breaking down, literally eating up the damaged tissue, So the body can repair the tissue, the remaining tissue, 
Now, ice feels really good on a sprained ankle. I admit that. It felt good on my knee when I had surgery uh, almost 20 years ago because it lessens the pain. Now, I'm sure this is an issue that causes a lot of debate within the medical community, the sports medicine community specifically. But what it demonstrates for us this morning is something that we thought was a rock-solid truth back in the day was actually an opinion and a practice that was subject to change. After all, we just followed the science back then. And sometimes the science is based on the traditions of men. And this is why the medical profession has to keep up with the latest research and development uh, in their field. But with Bible truth, we don't have to keep up with the latest research and development. We need to read and memorize and apply the truth. Because the truth that I read in here today is the same that the Apostle Paul believed in his day that David believed in his day, that Moses believed in his day. It never did change. So I'm not looking for the newest development in truth because there is no such thing. And we need to ignore those who say they have found some kind of hidden scripture that contradicts the Bible that we have. We need to reject the so-called new and relevant way of doing church as some say. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in fear of the traditions of men? And this is what happens when churches change the way they do things because other popular or successful pastors are doing it. It's what happens when the unpopular gospel, the one we preach, when the unpopular gospel is replaced with the gospel of I'm okay, you're okay. Why, that's good news, isn't it? Not for a sinner who needs to be saved. It's terrible news. Every day you wake up, you would wonder, am I still believing the right thing? I better check in with our pastor, see if he got another revelation from God. See if the truth has changed this week or today. Well, that pastor, so-called, is not a pastor. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he does this so he can hold you in the palm of his hand. Some of you may have been in such a place like that. And if you believed, if you feared the traditions of men over the commandments of God, you would be hanging on every word that pastor says. You wouldn't want to offend him. You wouldn't want to see his brow furrowed at you. You wouldn't want to offend the traditions of men that he holds whenever he says, I've received a new revelation from God. You'd want to make sure you were up to date and safe from condemnation. And you'd never know for sure. Now you want to talk about anxiety. That would produce it right there. And the Pharisees specialized in this type of manipulation, in getting people to fear other gods and the traditions of men. That's what Samaria's problem is, one of the many. You know, the Christian life should not be an anxious life because it's based on truth. 
It's not based on the traditions of men. It's authored by the one true God, not the God of this world and his false gods. And in fearing other gods and therefore fearing the traditions of men, the children of Israel brought upon themselves a load of anxiety. Listen to how Jesus addressed the wicked Pharisees who had caused men to fear other gods by holding the traditions of men above the commandments of God. And this is found in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 3. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying... Why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? The Pharisees had accused Jesus' disciples of violating the traditions of their elders, the traditions of man. And Jesus did not address that violation at all because it was never a commandment God gave to the children of Israel. There were hand-washing commandments given in the Old Testament mainly to the priests or to someone who had touched a dead body. There were all sorts of ceremonial washings, things that were to take place. But for the people to sit down in their own homes or on the side of the road as they travel and have a meal, there wasn't a commandment. Now, you better wash your hands before you touch that bread. That was something the Pharisees and the scribes put in for people to obey. Part of that worldly yoke they laid upon them that made it heavy and burdensome and grievous. But what Jesus did address to these Pharisees was the commandment of God because that's what was important to him. He didn't say that his disciples hadn't violated the traditions of men. In fact, he implied that they had, but that wasn't important to him. You didn't keep a custom that we have. So what? Pharisees, you have transgressed. You have broken the commandment of God. And he addressed that because the Pharisees had violated this commandment by dishonoring their parents. And dishonoring your parents was forbidden by the commandment of the Lord. We find it all the way back in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. When the traditions of men violate the commandments of God, then those traditions are wrong. Jesus taught us that, didn't he? He just taught us that. Why would we think it to be any different? When the traditions of man keep the commandments of God, then they're right. And here's a scripture on that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 
where Paul wrote to this church, Therefore, brethren, he's talking to Christians, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul said, you Thessalonian Christians, he implied here, they had been taught traditions by men, but those traditions were right. And we know they were right because he prayed at the end of the chapter that the Lord would establish you in every good word and work. Now, when God is establishing you in every good word and work, then the traditions you keep are good and right. God's never going to lead you to keep traditions that are wrong. And if men teach you those traditions that were established in the people who taught them, that the Lord's established them, then keep them because they're good and right. Because they're an outgrowth of the Lord establishing you in every good word and work. So one of the traditions we teach our children, or we should have, if not start now, is to read our Bibles. Now, studying to show myself approved is a commandment. I am to study to show myself approved. I am to hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. I'm to let his light be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I could go on and on with scriptures that tell us how important it is to read, to study, to memorize, to live by God's word. So when I teach my children that when they were little, and I would read my Bible to them in front of them, I wanted them to do what I did when they learned to read. I wanted them to take their Bibles and to open them up and to begin reading them. And it was so cute when they did when they were little. They didn't really understand what they were reading. So my Lauren, she was about four when she learned to read. And so she would come in after reading a chapter and I'd say, well, tell me what you learned. And, you know, a four-year-old doesn't remember a whole lot. So she would say, can I just tell you one thing? And I'd say, sure. And she, she read from Galatians, I believe it was chapter 3. She said, you're so foolish. <laughs> that was all she remembered. Well, that was what Paul told the Galatians. They were foolish. <laughs> and, uh, but that tradition I taught her was a right tradition. She didn't say, you know, Daddy... I would do that, but that's a tradition of men, and I'm not going to do it. That tradition of men happened to be a commandment of God. And that's why it was right for her to do as I did, and for all my children. Now, in obeying those words that Paul wrote, the Thessalonian Christians, and yea, the children of Israel, and us today too, would not have to fear other gods. Wouldn't have to fear those false doctrines as long as they and we feared the Lord and the commandments of the Lord. 
And I pray that our traditions at this church and in our own household will be the result of God establishing us in every good word and work. Now, being afraid of the traditions of men as the children of Israel were describes the mindset of an unbeliever. The unbeliever may say, well, I don't want to be seen as a religious nut. I mean, I'll go to church and all that when I can, when I have time, when it doesn't interfere with my golf game or whatever other excuse people give. Or he may say, you know, if I go to church, my golfing buddies are going to make fun of me if I don't go play with them on Sunday mornings and I don't want to break up our friendship. Or you'll hear people like that say, well, most people who go to church are accepting of alternative lifestyles, so I want to find somewhere that that does that. And all of these statements have one thing in common. They're based on the opinions and preferences of men. And I'm not sure how such a person who truly believes those things could also truly believe in judgment, heaven, hell, the lake of fire, because all of those doctrines and places are straight out of the Bible. That same Bible upon which the unbeliever tramples with his own traditions or his belief in them. Proverbs 23, verse 17. Proverbs 23, verse 17 says this Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in fear of the Lord all the day long. Don't envy what other people are doing. Don't envy what they have. Don't envy what other churches are doing. Don't envy someone else's pastor. Don't envy people who tell you, oh, our church is exciting and relevant and up-to-date and got a lot going on there. It's new. But be thou in fear of the Lord all the day long. Look back in verse 8 now in our text, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 8. It's, this is a continuation of verse 7. And walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Now let's look at that. This verse continues explaining how Samaria sinned against the Lord their God. Look at the phrase, walked in the statutes of the heathen. And these words show the natural progression of the last words of verse 7, which said, feared other gods. They feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the heathen. Now, if you walk in the statutes or the manners of the unbeliever, then you're going to commit the sins of the unbeliever. God gave Israel a commandment all the way back in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 23. And where it says, talking to the children of Israel, And ye shall not walk in the manners, think, keep that word in mind, in the manners of the nation which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Now the word manners in that verse is the same as the word statutes. How about that? Statutes are not 
just laws, although they represent laws, but they are also translated as customs or practices. So if you have a law, the assumption is that you're going to keep it, that your life is going to mirror what that law is. That's the assumption. That's the expectation. The reality is that people don't always obey the law. Now, we saw the word manners there. Everyone has manners, but not all of them are good manners, are they? If someone chews his food with his mouth wide open, we may say he has bad table manners. If you do that, you have bad table manners. Stop doing it. There's plenty of time to talk. It doesn't have to be when you have a mouthful of pot roast. And the manners of the nations which God cast out before them were bad manners. And those manners were built upon the traditions of men. And they were carnal. They weren't godly. And the manners of those nations were contrary to the manners God wanted his people to have. So those people and their manners had to go. Now speaking of God's long suffering with the disobedience, with the bad manners of Israel in the wilderness... Luke wrote us in Acts chapter 13, verse 18. Acts 13, verse 18. And said, And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners. That is, God put up with Israel's manners 40 years in the wilderness. Now we know what God did with those ill-mannered people, don't we? He killed every one of them off that were under the age of 20 when they... Or that were over the age of 20 when they were in the wilderness... And he let two of them go in the promised land. That was Joshua and Caleb. And in our text, Samaria did not heed God's warning to the children of Israel that was given way back in Leviticus. They can't say, well, we didn't know. They can't say, well, that's a new one. It wasn't a new one. It was truth. It never had changed. And the children of Israel in the wilderness paid a heavy price, and Samaria will too. Now look back in your text in verse 8, where it says, And walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Let's look at that phrase, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Describing these heathen or these unbelieving nations. God cast them out. Because their manners were contrary to the manners he commanded his people to have. God knew that good manners would not overcome evil manners. God knew that because he knows us. He knows what's in us. It was exactly the opposite, in fact. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 Paul told the church, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Did you notice he didn't say good manners overcome evil communications? He said evil communications corrupt good manners. And the word communications has to do with one's behavior while he's in the company of others, like social interaction. So it's not just about talking, it's about every aspect of that you share with others when you're around them, the way you walk, talk, dress, 
what you do, what you don't do, where you go, where you don't go. That's all your communication when it's used scripturally here, or when it's used uh, according to the Greek word that was translated as communications. Now, here's an example, and be sure you hear me out well on this. While we invite anyone, anyone to this church to hear the gospel, to hear God's word taught, we will not tolerate evil communications. So if somebody came into this church and said, I'm here to hear the word of God taught. We don't care what you look like, where you came from, what your religious background is, how much you know or don't know. It doesn't matter to us. Have a seat. Get ready for some good, something you need. May not like it. May be a little uncomfortable. It may be a lot uncomfortable. But it's being preached to you in love. And let's say that person gets up and they just start throwing a cussing fit. Well, Brother Andy is going to redirect his attention from the preaching of God's Word to removing that evil communication from this auditorium. And we're going to have a talk outside. And I'm going to say, you don't do that in here. We love for you to be here, but you're going to have to have good manners while you're in this church. This is the Lord's house. And you're making other people uncomfortable. You're being disrespectful. And you will not be allowed back in here if that continues. So we have to do that. What, what we don't do is go, well, we'll just let them stay in here. And maybe they'll notice that nobody else around them is throwing a cussing fit. And they'll stop. That's not going to happen. What happens if we allow them to stay in here and stay in here and just do what they want? Well, then somebody else may say, well, they let them get by with cussing. Maybe I'll start saying this or that. It's not as bad. And before you know it, you have a huge problem. God didn't tell his people, hey, hang out with this mixed multitude. See if you can rub off on them. He said, get them out of here. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And as the Lord commanded his church, we would go, if that person were a, a brother or a sister, we'd go privately to them. And if that didn't work, then we'd take a witness. And if that didn't work, then we'd bring the matter before the church. And at that time, if that still unrepentant brother or sister continued with their evil communications, whatever it was, their evil lifestyle, then we'd have to show them the exit door in obedience to what the Lord said. And we have historically accomplished that with a letter, and usually people never come back after they get the letter. Now you might say, well, again, why don't we just let our good manners rub off on them? Perhaps the person is a, is a sinner in this way or that way, or they practice this particular thing or that particular thing. Why don't we just keep them in here? After all, we're supposed to love everyone and accept everyone, and yes, we are to love everyone after the commandment of our Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to do what? To just rub off on people, hoping that they'd get better, hoping that they'd quit sinning? No, that he would give his life. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he accomplished that by sending his son to die on the cross. He knew that Jesus just living here on the earth, rubbing off his good ways on people, wasn't going to bring mankind to repentance. There had to be a sacrifice. They had broken God's law. 
And no amount of copying Jesus' lifestyle and doing as he did would bring man into acceptance with God. It didn't work then. It won't work now. That's how he showed his love. And we show our love not like the world does. We don't love the person's sin. We love them, but we're not to accept their sin. We pray for them that they turn from it. God said to drive those unbelieving Gentiles out of the land. And God cast out these enemy nations from his people because he knew that the very thing Samaria was going through in our study would happen every time Israel allowed bad-mannered people to live among them. Now let's look at how evil manners corrupted Samaria, leading them to fear other gods. First, we're going to see the external, the outside influence, the external bad manners taught to Israel by the heathen. The text says, and walked in the statutes of the heathen. Now the heathen, you may have your own vision of what it means for somebody to be a heathen. Sometimes you may have called your children that when they were acting up. You don't have to confess here. Uh, we don't need you to do that, but you've probably been called, I'll promise you. Somebody has called me a little heathen at some point when I was a little rascal. But the heathen, the word heathen is simply uh, the nations. That's what it means is nation. It's, it represented all of the Gentile nations of the world. And in fact, it's translated in the Old Testament as the word nation or nations twice as often as it is the word heathen. Not exactly twice, approximately twice. And guess what one of the translations of the Hebrew word for statutes is? Manners. We looked at that a moment ago. And the statutes or the manners of the heathen are seen in Leviticus 20 from which I read a while ago. And those, I'm going to summarize them, those manners of the heathen were this. Giving their seed to Moloch. That is their own children sacrificing them in the fire to the false god Moloch. Wizardry, witchcraft, cursing their parents, adultery, incest, and bestiality are all listed in verses 2 through 21 of that chapter. So in verse 23 of that chapter of Leviticus 20, God said to the children of Israel, and ye shall not walk in the manners of of the nation which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. And may I give you just one more scripture here, so we will know it is God's perfectly, plainly declared will that we're not to keep company with such wicked people. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul wrote... 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with the idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Now that's, those are the external. That's the outside. Uh, the bad manners on the outside, the unbeliever. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, 
or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from yourself, among yourselves that wicked person. And we're going to look at that verse next week a little more deeply and see what it means. We've learned a lot about how God sees bad manners and the people that have them, the people that practice them, the people who fear the traditions of men. And let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all who came today and all who've joined us over the Internet. And we're thankful for the Word of God upon which we can rely as the wellspring of all truth. Lord, we never have to doubt your word. We just need to read it and understand it and preach it to others. And I pray that you would help us to do that and that you would assist our pastor today as he preaches from Indiana and that, Lord, our eyes and our ears, our minds would be upon that which is preached and that our primary purpose here would be to worship you in spirit and in truth and to take home the truth from your word and apply it in our own lives, that we may be lights in this dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.